Reading's taken from Song of Songs, chapter 8, verse 5. Who is this coming up from the desert, leaning on her love? Under the apple tree I roused you. There your mother conceived you. There she who was in labour gave birth to you, gave you birth. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot wash it away. If one were to give all the wealth of his house for love, it would be utterly scorned. We have a young sister, and her breasts are not yet grown. What shall we do for our sister for the day she is spoken to? If she is a war, we will build towers of silver on her. If she is a door, we will enclose her with panels of cedar. I am a wall, and my breasts are like towers. Thus I have become in his eyes, like one bring contentment. Solomon had a vineyard in Balhaman. He let out his vineyard to tenants. Each was to bring for its fruit a thousand shekels of silver. But my own vineyard is mine to give. The thousand shekels are for you, O Solomon, and two hundred are for those who tend its fruit. You who dwell in the gardens with friends in attendance, let me hear your voice. Come away, my lover, and be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the spice-laden mountains. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Tim, young gazelle that you are. Uh, it's um, great at this time of year to welcome some folk back from different parts of the world and different parts of the country back with us. It's lovely to have Jill Ireland back with us this evening. Jill, just wave your hands so people know you here. Jill's one of our mission partners working in Thailand. And also great this evening, especially as we're looking at the Song of Songs, and it's all about a wedding, to welcome John Gianni and Joe Jeffries. Just stand, you two there. Just stand up for a minute, you two. And they've just got engaged, so that's really great. John and Joe are both doctors now working in uh, Sheffield and Newcastle, but were very, very much part of our church life for many years and crucial in the development of the whole Discuss program, which is such a blessing to so many of you. So it's lovely to welcome you both back this evening, and many congratulations. Song of Songs, chapter 8. You might want to keep it open in front of you as we'll be looking at it together. A man, uh, not Tim or uh, John Yarney for that matter, a man was wandering around in a field thinking about how good his wife had been to him and how fortunate he was to have her. He asked God, why did you make her so kind-hearted? And the Lord responded, so you could love her, my son. Why did you make her so good-looking? So you could love her, my son. Why did you make her such a good cook? So you could love her, my son. The man thought about this, and he said, I don't mean to seem ungrateful or anything, but why did you make her so stupid? So she could love you, my son. <laughs> now, the Song of Songs is much... Thank you, Catherine, very much indeed. For Catherine is my joke provider, by the way, so if you don't like them, Catherine, you're the one to blame. The Song of Songs is much less uh, cynical than that joke, and we're reaching the climax of this lovely song uh, tonight. And chapter 8 is both 
mysterious and compelling. In my reading of the story, for I think that there is a story in the song, as I've said over the previous three sermons, the beautiful girl has rejected the predatory advances of King Solomon in favor of her childhood sweetheart, the handsome, softly spoken, understated shepherd boy from the north, a man of so few words that he only has two lines in this chapter. As I read it, she has kept herself chaste for him. In verse 10, she is a wall, for she has repelled all invaders. So now we have this romantic picture of the couple heading to their home. They emerge from the desert, a place of suffering and of danger. And they are approaching the place, we can see at the start of chapter 8 or verses uh, 5 and 6, they're approaching the place where they fell in love, the place where their roots are. There your mother conceived you. In other words, after the adventures and attractions of Jerusalem, they are coming home. They are deeply in love. He has his girl leaning for dependence on his arm. Her breasts are described now no longer as fawns, but as towers. Is there a hint there of maturity, perhaps even of a family? She is no longer the little sister, verses 8 and 9, needing her brother's protection. And above all, there is this great biblical word, which is inadequately translated contentment in verse 10. The word is shalom. Peace, fulfillment, the implication is that everything is as it should be. God is in his heaven and all is well with the world. I am a wall, my breasts are like towers, thus I have become in his eyes like one bringing shalom, peace, fulfillment, contentment. Now the song, as we've seen, has been very realistic about human love. One commentator, Marcia Falk, writes this, the emotional fabric of the song is not wholly joyful, but sometimes interwoven with tensions and struggles. Taken as a whole, the song expresses the paradoxes of love in the world. Conflict, which intensifies passion. Painful separation, which heights, heightens the pleasure of reunion. Bonding, which gives the individual the courage to stand alone. Now, here in chapter 8, and not in my opinion in chapter 5, as some suggest, Shula, the name that we've given to our heroine, and David, the shepherd boy, are married, or perhaps they're soon to be married. They come home to their families, to the place where they belong. She leans on him, so his mum and dad will know that she relies on him. She esteems him. She builds him up. We men need that. How proud he must feel as he presents his beautiful sunburnt fiancée to his humble country folk parents. Do you know he might almost be saying, she could have had King Solomon himself, but she has chosen me. In chapter 5, which we looked at uh, last week, which I see as Solomon's strongest bid uh, for her hand. It's all about erotic imagery, tasting fruit, drinking wine, eating the honeycomb, 
drinking their fill. And huge pressure has been put upon the girl to abandon her true love and go with Solomon. But no, we're told in chapter 5 that she slept, but her heart was awake. And in the dream sequence that follows in, from on in, in chapters 6 and 7, we see that she concludes that her future lies not with the glamorous king, but with her true love. She resists the temptation to be unfaithful, to go the way of the world, but remains with her true love. In chapter 2 and verses 3 and 4, as love begins to take root in our heart, we have seen how she sung of her love for her, her, her young man. Just turn back to chapter 2 and verses 3 and 4, just for a moment. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my lover among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. He has taken me to the banquet hall, and his banner over me is love. And if you then just turn on to uh, verse 16 of chapter 2, we see a similar sort of refrain, my lover is mine, and I am his. My lover is mine, and I am his. And then finally in chapter 6 and verse 3, we see the similar sort of refrain again. She concludes with this advance in terms of their mutual love and acceptance of one another. Chapter 6 and verse 3, I am my lover's and my lover is mine. I am my lover's and my lover is mine. She has recognized the great truth that they belong together, that their love is the one that she chooses and that she will have and he has her love too. So here in chapter 8, I think that we've got to the wedding day. The time has come to seal the deal, to make marriage vows, to place a covenant agreement in place to protect young love, to make a public stand together as a couple. And I think verses 6 and 7 of chapter 8, and I think most of those who commentate on the song that I've read agree with this, verses 6 and 7 of chapter 8 are the key to understanding the Song of Songs. Let me read them again. The girl is speaking to her lover. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death, its jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot wash it away. If one were to give all the wealth of his house for love, it would be utterly scorned. The song, you see, is a hymn of love. And here and here alone, I think, is a clear indication that we are to see in the song not just a romantic tale of young love, nor indeed just a didactic treatise on the relationship of sexuality to love, something that we've looked at in some detail over the last three weeks, but a pointer, these, voices, these verses are a pointer to the great lover, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the ultimate wedding, the marriage feast of the Lamb. Let me expl explain why I conclude that. Behold the story in your head as well. Don't let the story go in your haste to spiritualize the song. The story is very important. The story has much to teach us about human love and human relationships. 
But don't stop with the story alone. It is a good story. I think it's a sad story for Solomon. Look, uh, for instance, here in chapter 8 at verse uh, 11 for a moment. Solomon had a vineyard in Baal Hamon. He let out his vineyard to tenants. Each was to bring for its fruit a thousand shekels of silver. In the song, the vineyard has consistently been a picture of the characters' bodies, their sexuality. And Solomon's vineyards, it, we're told, had many tenants. It seems it could be bought and sold, not a very romantic notion. Shula tells him, effectively, it seems to me, that he can keep his vineyard. He can even keep what little money she has. He can keep his sex-obsessed understanding of love. And we need to understand in a sex-obsessed society that this is an important message that we're hearing. She has her own body, her vineyard, and it is hers to give. And she has chosen to give it to her shepherd boy lover. David and Shula have the last word. Come on, he shouts. Let me, let me hear the people give us a cheer. Give us a cheer. Shout for us. Everyone who has heard the poem, who's heard the story, look at us coming together now. We are, love is triumphing. This is the, this is the embarrassed bridegroom. I had loads of them this summer. This is the embarrassed bridegroom getting up at his wedding reception and saying to the screams and delight of everyone, my wife and I want to thank you for coming. This is what he's saying here. Look at us, my wife and I. And she sits there and looks at him, the adoring wife. Look at him, last verse, my lover, my gazelle, my young stag. That's how my wife felt on our wedding day. That's how she still feels. <laughs> so don't lose the story. It is a lovely story. It should bring a tear uh, to your eye. But what are the big lessons? What can we learn? What can we put into practice? What is there here for us uh, as followers of Jesus Christ to apply in our lives today? Well, the song is basically a hymn in praise of love, but not just the love of a man and a woman. But let me make that, first, that point uh, first of all, once again, so we understand what the song is saying. Lesson one, love and marriage are part of God's plan for his people. Love and marriage are part of God's plan for his people. I said at the beginning that I believe that the song is a commentary on Genesis chapter 2 and verse 25. Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. And the song is intended to remind us that part of, great, of God's great plan is the one flesh relationship between a man and a woman, whereby each leaves the security of their parental home and they become a new unit, a new family. And the, so, the song affirms in graphic language heterosexual lifelong marriage. And we as a church must affirm that and say how important that is. This love, it says in chapter 8, is sealed in the heart. It is as strong as death whose grip holds every one of us. Personally, I, I don't subscribe to the view that marriage is indissoluble. There is too much evidence, I think, to suggest otherwise. But I do subscribe to the view that when you enter marriage, the possibility of it ending is unthinkable. It is unthinkable to imagine as you enter marriage that it will end. And if it does end, it is truly terrible. 
and it is the last, last, last resort. One of the great scandals of Western Christianity, surely, is our failure to be distinct from the world in this area. We have allowed the world to press us into its mold. And while I get older, I recognize the extreme complexity of different situations. And I find that there are, there are more gray areas in pastoral work, and they seem to become grayer as one does more and more pastoral work and more and more difficult situations. But I do believe that too many Christians are choosing divorce too soon rather than working through major problems. And I know that that's easy for me to say, but I think the high view of married love expressed in the song gives me liberty to say that because the song is included in Scripture. So love and marriage are part of God's plan for His people. The second lesson, I think, is something the song says something to us about singleness, love and, and singleness. And I'm very well aware that this is a very sensitive issue, and I speak as a married man, so I have to be particularly careful. And I'm dependent here um, largely upon an Australian theologian, Barry Webb, who has written a brilliant little book entitled Five Festal Garments, which is a very short reflection on the song and the other four so-called scrolls, uh, those books of the, of the Old Testament that I mentioned at the start of the series. And the New Testament, like the Song of Songs, recognizes the, the negative effects of the fall, of the fall of man's sinfulness, but affirms the essential goodness of life in the body and therefore of sex within marriage. You can hardly read the song for a moment without realizing that it affirms that. And of course, the primary purpose of sex, as I've said, is not procreation, but the unifying of the man and the woman. So the Roman Catholic dogma about contraception is therefore not only cruel, foolish, and inhuman, but it is unbiblical. It is not a right view of the Bible's view of sex. But what about singleness? What about those who are single and therefore for whom that, in their Christian discipleship, that option is not at present a possibility? When questioned about this in Matthew 19, Jesus affirms all that the song affirms. Just um, turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 19 and verses 4 to 6. where Jesus is questioned about divorce. It's on page 986. Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts, were your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, this is, if this is a situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way, others were made that way by men, and others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. 
The one who can accept this should accept it. So Jesus permits divorce, but only for marital unfaithfulness, and another sermon is needed on that to make clear exactly what is meant by that. But he goes on to say that some have renounced marriage for the kingdom of heaven. And Barry Webb writes this in his little book, dedication to God involves self-sacrifice, and Matthew 19 is part of the broader teaching about discipleship. The true disciple must be willing to forego marriage, home, loved ones, even life itself, if need be, for the sake of the kingdom. Let me read that again because I think that's really important. The true disciple must be willing to forego marriage or delay marriage or delay, a, let delay fulfillment or, or experience of their sexuality. They need to be willing to forego marriage, home, loved ones, even life itself, if need be, for the sake of the kingdom. Singleness, Barry Webb writes, is no more idealized, no more idealized than homelessness or death. So let us be honest and recognize that in singleness, there is real deprivation and real struggle. Singleness is not to be seen as inferior to marriage, and single people should certainly not be regarded as incomplete in any way that calls into question their integrity and dignity as human beings. But we must also let the song and Genesis 2 have their say. It is not good for man to be alone. It is not good for man to be alone. In the context of everything else in creation being very, very good, that is a stark, stark contrast. And the good that Genesis points us to, uh, the alternative to aloneness in Genesis, is the one flesh union of Adam and Eve. And it is that union that the song celebrates and it climaxes in this shalom, this contentment, this fulfillment of verse 10. So Barry Webb very wisely writes this, and I quote him, the New Testament teaching that singleness is a state which is preferable in certain circumstances, as taught, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 7, is to be seen against this background. It does not conflict or overturn it, Singleness remains a state that is, quote, from Genesis 2, not good in the sense that it is by definition a state of relative loneliness in which certain natural created desires are not met. There are great compensations, of course, in being single and important benefits, but particular needs remain unmet, and the single person has to live with that and work through it. Both single people and those who minister to them should acknowledge this so that reality is recognized and denial avoided. I think that's helpful and practical advice and should help us to love one another better. Lesson three, love and the covenant of God. And with this, I come to the conclusion of my study of the Song of Songs. I want you to look very carefully at chapter eight, verses six and seven. Let me read them once more. I've read them once, but they're, they're, they're crucial. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death, its jealousy unyielding as the grave, burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love, 
Rivers cannot wash it away. If one were to give all the wealth of his house for love, it would be utterly scorned. Fire and water are both powerful images of God in the Old Testament. And love, as it is described here, itself possesses some of the attributes of God. It is priceless. It is unquenchable. It is strong. It is blazing. Love like this is equal to all challenges. Now, you don't need me to tell you that I'm no uh, Hebrew expert, but I'm capable of reading a commentary. And it is clear that many people think that the expression translated here, the, uh, the blazing fire, a mighty flame, a mighty flame, that, uh, that translation could, it literally means the flame of Yah, the flame of Yahweh. Now, there's much debate about the commentaries about whether one's reading too much into that, but most people to think that here we have a clear indication that love is the flame of God. It is, uh, it is God's invention. And last week at our 11.15 service, Donald Hay explained what it means when the Bible calls God a, a jealous God. He explained it very clearly. It's, the sermon is on the website for you. And here we see that love is described here as jealous. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. We have a jealous God, a God who is jealous for our love. You recall that Moses met God in the flames of a burning bush. Most people think that the love depicted in these verses must therefore, for the writer, have its source in Yahweh, that in the Lord. It is from the Lord that this love that has been celebrated and described in the song has come. So to love like this, to love in this pure and uh, abandoned way, to love like this is to partake in the very nature of God. Now this point is made in a veiled and elusive way in the song. But I think it does account for how it was accepted into the canon of Scripture. It's hard to understand if this is just a secular love song, why it's in the canon of Scripture. But here we have a clear, well, at least a veiled suggestion that this source of God, this source of love is from God. So we cannot but conclude by pointing away from the covenanted love of our two characters, Shula and David, to the covenant love of the one who has brought love into the world, a thought that we will be picking up in the carol service next week. Love comes down at Christmas. So we can point as we conclude the series from the covenant love of a man and a woman to the covenant love of Jesus and his people. Where can we find the ultimate shalom? Where are we to find the contentment of which this poem speaks? Yes, we can enjoy the God-given love and peace of human relationships, and specifically uh, in the song, the euphoria of sexual fulfillment. That is legitimate for God's people. But in fallen human beings, however good that is in our married relationships, it is temporary and as you go through life, it is also often elusive, as we all know, I'm sure. So the Bible tells us that there is a greater shalom 
there is a greater contentment, there is a greater fulfillment, there is a greater peace available to every single one of us, married or single. It is a shalom. It is a peace that death cannot destroy. It is a peace that fire cannot burn up. It is a peace that water cannot wash away. It cannot be purchased for money. It cannot be purchased for all the tea in China. The true and final triumph over death and the grave, the complete release from the curse of the fall is only to be found in this great love. And where do we find this great love? Well, of course, we find it at the cross of Christ. There is the ultimate self-giving of the great lover for his people. There he gave his body for the love of his people. See, the cross enables a new relationship, a covenant in his blood to be brought about between God and his people. And that's why we're going to celebrate Holy Communion in a few, in a few moments, to celebrate that remarkable act of self-giving love. We will come up from the desert out of a place of pain and suffering, and we will be leaning in faith upon our lover, the great Jesus, as we remember his death for us this evening. Paul and John, in their writings, depict uh, a relationship of a bridegroom, Jesus, to his bride, the church. A great relationship is brought about by this great event, a covenant relationship, and the New Testament is quite open to speak about it as a marriage. So the covenant relationship between God and His people leads inevitably to a wedding. Where else would we find a bride and a bridegroom but at a wedding? You see, in heaven there will be no sex and there will be no marriage as we know them. Nor will there be any singleness, by the way. Everything will be good. Everything will be good. The not good will have gone. No one will be alone. There will be a great inclusive marriage of Christ and His people, in which all who have been redeemed, all who have been rescued, all who belong to Jesus will be included. There is, uh, in the book of Revelation, a few uh, snaps from this wedding album, a few photographs of what it will be like. Let me just share one with you. Turn to Revelation chapter 19 and verse 6. This is that uh, you're looking into your future wedding album as you read this. Then I heard what sounded, this is on page 1247. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Alleluia, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen, standing for the righteous acts of the saints. So there you are, there we are, waiting like uh, a bride with her bridegroom. So hold to the testimony, hold to the word of Jesus, and we too 
can anticipate the wedding banquet. These are those who held to the testimony and whose clothes have been washed white in the blood of the Lamb. I am my beloved's, and he is mine, and his banner over me is love. He takes me up to his banqueting table, and his banner over me is love. This is the great destiny for God's people. This is where love will take us. I trust I will see you there. Amen.